Hello, this is your host, Trevor Furness. And before we begin our episode today, I want to take a moment to thank five of our supporters on Patreon. These people are patrons of the March of History. Their names are, and I'm only going to say first names, Giancarlo, Ray, Peggy, Carrie, and Laurie. Thank you all so much. You are patrons of the March of History. You have joined me on this journey. And much like the Medici of the Renaissance who supported Michelangelo and Leonardo da Vinci, you have now put forward money to support the artwork that is the March of History. The March of History may not seem like art at first glance, but it is historical tales told in an in an oral format, which is a form of art that goes back as far as human history itself. So you have put forward your hard-earned money to help contribute to the March of History, and I cannot thank you enough. We are on this journey together, and the March of History will only get better and better with your contributions. So thank you. Now, if you want to become one of these patrons, if you want to join us on this journey, you can go to patreon.com slash the march of history. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash the march of history. There's also a link in the summary to every single podcast episode. And we have recently launched a PayPal account, which does not have a friendly link. So I have also listed that in the summary section of every podcast episode that we put out. So on the PayPal, if you want to make a single donation for uh, you know one time or donate per episode, you can do that. Or on the Patreon, if you want to donate per month, you can donate on the Patreon. So a few different options for you now. But thank you so much for your support, our patrons, and I'll talk to you in the episode. This is episode 45 of the March of History, and I am your host, Trevor Furness. We left off in the last episode with Caesar finishing off the war with the Veneti, and we pick back up at the end of that campaign when Caesar gets word that elsewhere in Gaul, his lieutenants have been very successful. So yes, as I said in the last episode, there was not a big campaign this year. The war against the Veneti was a relatively minor one, but there were several of these minor campaigns happening at once. And pretty much as soon as Caesar finishes with the Veneti, he gets word that one of his lieutenants, Sabinus, was victorious in what is modern-day Normandy in suppressing the tribes there. Later, he gets word that young Crassus, the son of his political ally in Rome, had a victory of his own down in Aquitania in what is today southern France, or back in Caesar's day, southern Gaul. And according to Caesar, during this campaign in Aquitania, there were three different tribes that all put their senates, their own senates, to death for their senates' reluctance to start a war. So in other words... These three tribes had senates that did not want to go to war, that felt that war with the Roman people was a bad idea and would end badly for them. And these people, because their senators were reluctant to go to war, put their senators to death. What a wild idea. I'm not saying it's a good idea by any means, but what a wild concept. Elsewhere in Gaul, Labienus was able to keep the Belgic peoples in check. There was worries that they were bringing Germans over the Rhine and inviting them in, and Labienus, by heading up there quickly with the cavalry, was able to nip that in the bud. So, it's been 
a busy year for Caesar and his lieutenants, despite the fact there has been one giant campaign, one campaign that focused all their strength. But the campaigning is kind of done, and there's still time left in the campaign year. So Caesar decides that there's time for one more small minor campaign before winter comes. There are two tribes that go by the names of the Benapii and Marini. And in Caesar's opinion, these two tribes need to be taught a lesson. You see, according to Adrian Goldsworthy, these two tribes are located along kind of France and Belgium's coast in the area of France that is today called Pas-du-Calais, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. So kind of straddling the borders between Belgium and France on the coast. And these two tribes had joined the Belgic Coalition. That's the one that a number of episodes ago Caesar had had to pick up a shield and fight along with his troops on the front line. These tribes had joined that war and joined that coalition against Rome. And when Caesar put down the coalition, defeated the Belgic tribes, these two tribes never bothered to send peace envoys to the Romans. So in Caesar's eyes, and he actually says this, they still remained ready for war. If they didn't send peace envoys, that means they still have war on their minds and they need to have their minds changed forcibly via warfare. So seeing as there's nothing else going on in Gaul at this point, Caesar decides to lead this small campaign personally and his troops march to meet the Monopii Marini. But there's a slight issue here. The Monopii and the Marini are different than other Gallic tribes. They don't have large towns and concentrated populations They are very spread out through wild countryside with swamps and deep, dark forests. And because of this, they have a different method of waging war. They have seen the great Gallic tribes go head-to-head with Rome in warfare and get utterly smashed again and again now. And they decide that being both of them smaller tribes themselves, they're not going to try to take Rome head-on like that. Instead, they're going to engage in guerrilla warfare. Like I said, they had tons of marshes and forests to hide in, so they began to move their people and all of their possessions into these regions, these forests and these swamps to hide from the Romans. Now, they're not just hiding. They can use these landscapes to their advantage. They know these forests and these swamps better than the Romans ever will, and they can appear and disappear in what it seems like at will to the Romans and will just bewilder the Romans who are trying to fight them. So the campaign starts with Caesar pursuing these peoples right up to the edge of these deep, dark forests where the people are hidden in. And the Roman army gets there, and you got to imagine they send scouts around to look for any enemy in the area, and they come back and say, hey, no Gauls in sight, so it's okay to go ahead and build the camp. So the Romans spread out, put their packs down, put their weapons down, break out the shovels, start digging trenches start cutting down trees for walls, doing all the things that's required of a camp to get ready for the night and to build a strong fortified area. And while this is happening and their guard is down, the Marini and the Monopii suddenly rush out from all areas of these deep, dark forests and attack the Romans unprepared. And I gotta say, this seems to happen fairly often to Caesar in the Gallic Wars. I mean, this happened against the Belgic tribes too, That's why that big battle happened, was the Romans came up to a hill and looked around and said, hey, it doesn't seem to be many Gallic peoples around here, just a few Gallic cavalry on the other side of the river, no big deal, let's drop our guard, put down all of our packs, and start building our fort. 
for the night. And then the Gauls rushed out of, you know, a nearby forest where they were hidden. So it, it seems like the Romans, or at least Caesar's armies, never do a great job of scouting the area beforehand. And they're paying the price for this again and again. But the Romans are never so easily defeated. So as much as they can, they drop what they're doing. They grab whatever weapon they can find nearby to them. And they begin fighting off this ambush. And Caesar... The way he words this, he shows it as a Roman victory. The Romans got the best of these ambushers and began chasing them into the woods. Now, in my humble, non-historian opinion, this seems like an obvious trap to me, right? You ambush the enemy, you get them riled up and fired up, and then you run back into the deep, dark forest that only you know where you have warriors hidden, and you lure them in there, right? That just seems like Warfare 101, and these kind of fake retreats were sometimes used in ancient warfare. And sure enough, the Romans follow the Gala tribe straight into the deep, dark forest, and a number of the Romans go too far into the forest, and Caesar says they just never return. Now, this has to be the stuff of nightmares for your average Roman legionary. Because you, you read a lot of these accounts where the forests are depicted as being endless in Gaul and Germany and having all sorts of spooky and dark things in them, people living in them that are more beasts than human in the Roman eyes, and this idea that the Roman legionary, that symbol of Roman military might and power and fortitude, can go wandering into these dark forests and just poof, disappear and never come back, and you don't even find his body, must have been terrifying to the Roman psyche. The Romans have not faced war in Gaul like this yet. It has not become a guerrilla partisan type warfare. Now, most of the Romans may have been terrified and quaking in their boots at what just happened, but lucky for them, they have one Roman who's heading the army who is not afraid at all, and that is Julius Caesar. Caesar's response is, if they're going to use these trees to hide and ambush my men, I'll simply cut down the forest. And he sets his men to chopping down as many trees as they possibly can, just wiping out forests. I mean, Caesar says that his soldiers cut down trees at unbelievable speeds. That's a quote from the Gallic commentaries. With an, He said, an unbelievable speed. And they use these trees to reinforce their current position where they have their military camp and to make it more difficult for the Gauls to ambush them in the future. And this has some initial success. They end up capturing the baggage and the cattle of the Menopia and Marini, and the Menopia and Marini are forced to retreat further and further into the forest. Lucky for them, these forests truly are deep and dark, so they can just keep retreating further and further. But then Caesar's famed luck, which so often serves him so well, turns. And, and here, I mean, if there's a time to be unlucky, this is a good time to be unlucky because it's just a minor campaign against two small tribes. It's not like the fate of Gaul or Rome or Caesar depends on this campaign. So even in his unlucky times, Caesar is quite lucky. But in this case, the weather turns and the rain hits the area. Caesar calls it an endless rain, nonstop rain, just pouring buckets on the Roman legionaries and in this weather, they can't keep cutting the trees down. They can't keep up these operations. The campaign has become bogged down. You have to imagine there's tons of mud. I mean, you can read World War II accounts of people in trenches just being absolutely bogged down in mud that will swallow you whole, probably not too far from this area where the Roman legionaries are. 
And this has now become a slow campaign of attrition where weather's bogging everybody down. And even if it wasn't for the weather, it's hit and run, it's ambush. It's not a quick hitting campaign where you can knock the enemy out, which is what Caesar prefers. Now, Throughout history, you will see generals dedicate more and more resources to these kinds of warfares. I mean, you can even look in modern history at things like Vietnam or you know Afghanistan with the Soviets or, or any number of warfares where you have a very strong side against a number of guerrilla fighters, and the guerrilla fighters at very low cost themselves can just bog down a big empire who just keep pouring more and more resources into the problem, expecting to solve it, and it goes nowhere. That's kind of the goal of the guerrilla warfare, is to to bleed them dry by little cuts. And the reason why the larger empire won't give up is their pride, right, is is a big part of it. They feel it would be too big of a dent in their egos and their pride and in their renown around the world to be seen to be bested by a small group of guerrilla fighters when they're supposed to be this great empire. Caesar shows a a lesson for history here in that he doesn't let his ego get in the way of what's best for his troops and best for the campaign, and he knows when to cut his losses. So what he does is he just burns some villages that he can get his hands on, quote, devastates the fields of the tribes of the Marini and the Menopii, and then calls it quits, heads back to winter quarters. He's not going to get bogged down spending years fighting two tribes in deep, dark forests, cutting down endless swaths of trees instead of conquering Gaul, which is his real purpose. So he marches his legions back to their winter quarters among tribes that they've recently beaten to make sure that these tribes stay loyal and don't foment revolution and rebellion in the legionaries' absence, and the third campaign season in Gaul is over for Caesar. And all the legionaries are looking forward to a restful winter. As I've said in past episodes, Caesar was famed for relaxing discipline in winter and letting his troops do whatever they want. If they stunk of perfume, it didn't matter because they would fight just as well come the campaign season. But their rest would be disrupted this winter. Why? Well, of course, because Germans are crossing the Rhine again. So now we move our story to two Germanic tribes. They are known as the Eusipites and the Tencteri. I find saying both of their names back to back a bit of a mouthful, so you may hear me more often just refer to them as the Germanic tribes. In this particular episode, if I say the Germanic tribes, I'm talking about the Eusipites and the Tencteri. It's just a, a mouthful to say. But there were two Germanic tribes that lived east of the Rhine, that's on the Germanic side of the river, and they have been at war with the Swaybi for quite some time now, maybe even generations, we don't really know. And the Swaybi, to remind you, were the tribe of Ariovistus. Ariovistus had been the Germanic king that Caesar had fought in his second campaign. He had defeated Ariovistus, and I mean, the way he words is almost wiped out his tribe of the Swaybi. But apparently the Swaybi are still very much alive and well across the Rhine. In fact, Caesar says that the Swaybi are the most powerful and most aggressive of all the German tribes in Germania. Now, I've read elsewhere that the Swaybi, you would more consider them a loose confederation of tribes than an actual tribe itself. But either way, they are powerful and they dominate Germania at this time, according to Caesar. 
and the Suebi have been just beating on their neighbors on all sides for you know a long time now and chasing them out. It's kind of a, a point of pride among the Suebi is to have an uninhabited territory around their tribe. This showed how few tribes could actually stand up to them and their military might. So they would drive out or eradicate, meaning kill, any tribe that surrounded their territory. And supposedly the Suebi on one side of their territory had 600 miles of uninhabited land due to this policy. This land presumably at one point had been inhabited by thriving tribes and over decades or maybe centuries of warfare, the Suebi had eradicated or pushed out all of these people and created 600 miles of wilderness and this was a point of pride to their tribe. Now, flashback to the Eusipides and the Tencteri, the two Germanic tribes in our story today, and they were unfortunate enough to be within beating range of the Suebi. And after, I mean, it could have been years, it could have been generations of taking this beating, they finally decide that they can't take the pressure anymore, and they are driven from their homeland by the Suebi, and like the Helvetii, they pick up all of their possessions with all of their people, men, women, and children, and they begin to wander. They are looking for a new home. The issue is that quality, uninhabited land was scarce, even 2,000 years ago. You, sometimes I think with the populations today that you know land is more valuable than it's ever been, but then you read things like this, where 2,000 years ago, it was very difficult to find good uninhabited land that you could just acquire. Everything was taken already if it was any good. And so the Eusipides and the Tencteri wander around Germania for three years looking for a new home, looking for a good quality land where they can settle all of their people, and they are not few. I mean, Caesar claims that they were 430,000 people. That's men, women, and children. Now, all the normal caveats about ancient numbers, about Caesar's numbers, but however many it was, it was a large host of people, and it's difficult to find a home for that many people. Now, as Caesar just finished fighting the Monopii and has settled his troops in their winter quarters, suddenly, wandering out of Germania, comes these two Germanic tribes, the Eusipides and the Tencteri. They are at the end of their three-year odyssey, and they have stumbled across the Monopii. That is one of the same two tribes that Caesar was just waging war on and chopping down all their trees. They are one of the smaller Gallic tribes, and they actually occupy both sides of the Rhine. They have settlements in northern France near the North Sea on both sides of the Rhine, and they take one look at this massive German host approaching them. And they decide that their settlements on the east side of the Rhine, the Germanic side of the Rhine, are not defendable. And so they just abandon everything they have on the far side of the Rhine and retreat to the Gallic side and set up a garrison to guard the river and forbid the Germans from crossing. Now, Caesar says that the Eusipides and the Tencteri try every which way to get across the Rhine but have no luck, mainly because they have no boats. And at this point in history, there are no bridges across the Rhine. If you don't have boats, you're out of luck. So they retreat from the Rhine, the Germanic tribes, and begin to head back into Germania. 
And the Monopii, the small Gallic tribes, celebrate this and they reoccupy their homes on the Germanic side of the Rhine and all is well for the Monopii. Or so it appears. But the Eusippides and the Tencteri have other plans because they march three days away from the Rhine, stop, and turn back. And they begin marching back towards the Monopii. And if that wasn't enough... They send their cavalry force ahead of them, and the cavalry force is very strong and manages to make it back to Monopii territory in a single night. They catch the Monopii completely off guard and by surprise. They kill them, they take their boats, they row across the Rhine, and they attack the Monopii garrison on the far side of the river before the garrison even knows about the massacre on the Germanic side of the river. They then defeat the Monopii garrison left to guard the river. They occupy the Monopii towns. Presumably at some point they bring over the rest of the Eusippides and the rest of the Tenctari over the Rhine and into Gaul. And they then live fat and happy that winter off of the provisions that the Monopii had worked so hard during the summer and springtime and fall time to gather. You know, all the food that the Monopii worked hard to plant and to harvest and to collect and to dry out and make sure it was in safe places. The Eusippides and the Tenctari are living fat and happy off of the Monopii's hard work. It is a dog-eat-dog world in the ancient world. And these Germanic tribes are demonstrating that clearly to the Monopii. Now, let's flash back to Caesar during this time. Caesar has gone down in a Cisalpine Gaul, one of his three provinces. This was his typical custom. He had all sorts of duties as a Roman governor. That's the thing that you, gotta, that you always have to remember about this. Caesar had actual duties that would take up most of anybody's days managing three different provinces and his war in Gaul is almost like an extracurricular activity. And he's got to, you know, in the wintertime, head back to do his main coursework, which was managing these three provinces and being the governor of them. So he has more to do than most people could do in a lifetime, and he somehow manages all of it excellently. But Caesar gets word of this newest invasion down in Cisalpine Gaul, and he fears that this is going to spread instability in Gaul, instability in a Gaul that he is working very hard to subdue and make stable from the Roman point of view. That is the last thing he wants. He's afraid it's going to seem to the Gauls like there's a new power in town and that many of the Gallic chieftains may invite them in, just like they had Ariovistus, to help them fight their wars and fight their enemies. And some of them probably consider Rome to be an enemy, and it would seem very convenient to them to invite these Germans into their territory to fight the Romans or to fight each other, any one of which is not okay by Caesar. Rome wants to be the only power in town, not competing with constant roaming German tribes coming over the Rhine to jump into the fray. So Caesar knows an emergency when he sees one. He leaves his winter quarters early to meet up with his troops. There, once he gets to his troops, he learns that his worst fears about the situation are true, and a number of Gallic tribes have already sent embassies to the Eusippides and to the Tenctari, and these embassies have promised these tribes everything they could possibly want, and when the Eusippides and the Tenctari get these messages, they begin invading even further into Gaul because they're encouraged that the Gauls want them there, that they have potential allies, that they can that these people are not united against these new German invaders, and that they'll be easy to play off against each other. 
So now it's Caesar's move. Interestingly enough, he summons all the Gallic leaders, and he doesn't tell them that he knows some of them have sent embassies to the Germans. Instead, he simply says that he, quote, soothed and reassured them. And he tells them to go ahead and raise cavalry and announces that he will wage war on the German tribes. Essentially, he's saying, don't worry, Daddy Caesar is here. You guys don't have to worry about these Germans. I'm going to take care of them for you. All you have to do is raise some cavalry for me. And I think that this is another lesson in handling people from reading Caesar's Gallic Wars because Caesar doesn't launch into any public embarrassings of these Gallic chieftains for being disloyal or of shaming tribes for being treacherous. There's no punishing members of his coalition for disloyalty. Instead, he sees that the only reason why they would even be doing this is because these German tribes have come over the Rhine. So if you eliminate the threat or you know, from the Gallic mind opportunity, then you eliminate the disloyalty. And there's no reason to beat down on members of this coalition that you want to like you and get along with you and want to be part of this Roman coalition if you can just focus on the Germanic tribes instead. And that's a heck of a lesson because I think a lot of people would have seen these Gallic tribes that you thought were your allies reaching out to these potential enemies and trying to defect to them and said, oh, no, no, this is this can't happen. Let me, you know, let me put a beat down on these Gallic tribes and teach them who's boss. Instead, Caesar ignores this poor behavior on part of his Gallic allies, at least poor behavior from the Roman point of view, and focuses on the new enemy, the Germans. So Caesar gathers up his supplies, gathers up his legions, his Gallic cavalry, and he marches to meet the Eusipides and the Tenctary. Now, let me just take a moment to say that one of our main sources, or the single main source for everything that we had that follows in this episode is Caesar himself. And he's not the only source of these events, but he is certainly the most detailed. There are other sources that just kind of brush over these events and so don't really corroborate or contradict Caesar, so they don't really help us one way or the other. But I always say that typically we have to treat what Caesar says in the commentaries with some caution, because he is the protagonist in his own story. After all, he talks about himself in third person in, in the commentaries. He's literally the main character of his own story. And in this story that I'm about to tell you, I'll say you need to use even more caution, because the events that unfold here will be hotly debated in the Roman Senate, and Cato will lead an opposition against Caesar and his actions in these events, and it will end with Cato even suggesting that Rome should give up Caesar to the Eusippides and the Tenctary as a sort of hostage to do with as they will. As always, Caesar is not just fighting enemies on the fringes of the empire, he is fighting enemies all over. Some of them domestic, some of them foreign, some of them barbarians, some of them Roman. But given this debate that happens in the Senate and how heated it gets and how Cato says that they should give Caesar up to the barbarians to do with as they wish, we have to know that Caesar's narrative is even more than usual, as it always is, designed to justify his actions. So just treat what I tell you that Caesar says with some caution. You can't throw it out wholesale because it's, it's mostly the only thing we have to, to work with. But be skeptical. So, Caesar marches towards the Germanic tribes, and when he's only a few days away, they send out envoys to meet with him. 
these envoys talk to Caesar and basically tell Caesar, look, we don't have any issues with Rome. We're not looking to fight Rome. But if Rome wants to attack us, we're not going to back down. And they end up in making a speech to Caesar saying, and this is from the Gallic commentaries, so it's from Caesar. He says, quote, they, meaning the Germanic tribes, went on to state that they had come against their will after being thrown out of their homes. If the Romans wanted their goodwill, they might find them useful friends. So they concluded, the Romans must either give them land or allow them to hold on to what they already won by force of arms. They gave way only to the Suebi, for whom not even the immortal gods were a match. Certainly there was no one else on earth whom they could not conquer. End quote. Now, there's a subtle threat in that speech. They talk about how they only give way to the Suebi, who not even the immortal gods can match, and that certainly no one else on earth is a match for them, which, of course, means that they believe that Rome is not a match for them, and that is the message that they are sending. Now, the barbarian trash talk has begun, and Caesar's never one to allow some dirty barbarians to talk smack about him or his mother city of Rome without clapping back. So Caesar first responds and tells him that we can't be friends as long as you remain in Gaul. That's a condition. If you want to be allies with us, you have to go back across the Rhine, back where you came from. And then he goes on to clap back with a quote of his own. He says, quote, It was not fair that men who had failed to protect their own territory should be occupying another people's land nor was there any land in Gaul available to be given out without doing injustice, especially since they were so very numerous. Even so, if they wished, they might settle in the territory of the Ubii, whose envoys were presently with him complaining of outrages done by the Suebi and asking his help. He would issue the Ubii with orders to this effect. End quote. So Caesar there essentially making the case that, look, if you can't defend your own land, you have no right to anyone else's land. But he does come up with a well-reasoned diplomatic solution, saying that the UBI are another tribe in the area that Caesar's in contact with that are having issues with the exact same German tribe, the Suebi. So why don't you go and team up with the UBI? The UBI would love to have you, and both of you should be a match together for the Suebi. Now, the envoys say that they have to think about this and they got to report back to their people and talk to their tribe and that they'll return back in three days with an answer, but they ask Caesar not to come any closer in the meantime. Caesar, of course, is not falling for this one and says no can do. He has intelligence reports already that most of the Eusipides and the Tenctaries cavalry force is away plundering and foraging in Gaul. So Caesar suspects that they are delaying and waiting for the return of this cavalry force and trying to buy time in the meantime. And Adrian Goldsworthy makes the point that it might not have been in order to fight the Romans. So there's a few different options. The Germanic tribes could be waiting for these cavalry forces to return to declare war on Rome and to fight them. Or alternatively, if there's going to be some kind of negotiated peace, it strengthens their position to have more soldiers with them and more of a threat to their negotiations, so they could be waiting for that purpose too. But either or, whether they're waiting to attack Caesar with their full forces or just want more forces for the negotiation, it's not good for Caesar to wait either way. And Caesar's very much aware of this. After all, he kind of tricked the Helvetian the exact same way. 
If you remember in the first campaign with Caesar, when he faced the Helvetii in Gaul, the Helvetii approached his territory of Cisalpine Gaul and requested to come into his territory. Caesar asked for a few days to think it over and you know, told the Helvetii to come back then. And when the Helvetii returned, lo and behold, Caesar had spent those few days raising additional troops, concentrating them on the crossing point, building walls along the river to stop the Helvetii from coming in. So Caesar had used exactly the same tactics to trick the Helvetii. It was not about to fall for them when the German tribes tried to use them against him. So Caesar tells them that he will keep advancing regardless of what they want, and he'll see them in the three days. So Caesar continues to move forward, continues to advance on the Germanic position, and when he is only 12 miles from the Eusippides and the Tencteres camp, Adrian Goldsworthy speculates that this is roughly three days later, the envoys come back. And they urgently ask him to stop marching now. And it, it, I always get a kick out of this. I get the impression that they're expecting their journey to take them a number of days or you know X amount of miles. And they're shocked when they encounter Caesar's entire army marching towards them a heck of a lot quicker, only 12 miles out. And they seem panicked by this Roman proximity to their forces. And, you know, they immediately go to Caesar. Whoa, 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 slow down there, Caesar. What's the rush? Why don't you take a seat? You know, let's talk this out. And the envoys meet with Caesar and they have a number of requests. Their first request, again, is please stop coming closer to us. We do not want you any closer to us than you already are. Two, Please tell your advanced cavalry, who are even closer to us than the army is, not to attack us. And three, let us send envoys to the UBI, that's the tribe that Caesar said was also having problems with the sway by. And if their Senate and if their leading citizens swear to support this deal, then hey, we accept. It seems like a good deal to us. Oh, and one more thing, Caesar, we need three more days for that last part because, you know, it's going to take time for us to send people to the UBI. They have to meet. They have to gather their eminent citizens. They have to vote. And then they have to send a word back to us. And then we have to meet with you again. So just give us three days for the last part. We need three more days. Is that okay? And I just get the image of Caesar just rolling his eyes listening to this because I got to imagine he's pretty sure he knows exactly what's happening here. Sometimes I get the impression that when it comes to political maneuvering in Gaul and Germania, the Gallic and German tribes are playing checkers, and Caesar has spent a lifetime practicing some kind of 3D futuristic chess, honing his skills in the cutthroat political world of Rome, and is just on a different playing field when it comes to politicking than most of these people. But to be fair, you know, a lot of this information comes from Caesar. So, of course, he could write the story to make himself look that way. So Caesar thinks over their proposal and he doesn't want to completely give in to what they're saying. He doesn't really believe them. But at the same time, he does want to build some kind of goodwill. So he makes compromise. He tells them that he will advance no more than four miles that day in the search of water and orders them to assemble in their full strength, the Germans' full strength, the next day. And the reason Caesar gives for this is, quote, so that he could learn what it was they were requesting, end quote. Take that for what it is. Uh, it's kind of a confusing statement. Caesar also sends a messenger to his cavalry telling them not to attack, but that if they are attacked, they were allowed to defend themselves, but no more. 
So now Caesar and these Germanic tribes have a truce in place. It looks like peace and negotiations are going to win the day. But then the train goes off the rails. That same day that they come to this agreement, the truce is broken. Now, according to Caesar, the Roman cavalry was doing some scouting that day. Their number was about 5,000 strong. And it was more likely than not that they weren't coalesced in a 5,000-strong cavalry force riding around with you know 5,000 people all in one spot. Instead, if they were doing their jobs right, they would be spread out over a wide distance, patrolling different areas, seeing if there's any ambushes that lay in wait for the Roman army, and you know generally just kind of patrolling the area. Now, the Germans, like I said, have most of their cavalry out raiding and out pillaging, and so they only have 800 cavalry left in camp. But these 800 cavalry troops the Germans do have are not in the slightest intimidated by the Roman numerical advantage. And just the continual reminder that the Roman cavalry are Gallic cavalry. See, Caesar makes a number of comments about the Germanic view of cavalry and their strategy and tactics in fighting. He says that the Germans rode their horses bareback, for one, and despised riders who used saddles. Well, who uses saddles? The Gauls use saddles. <laughs> and so if a group of Germanic cavalry soldiers spotted a Gaul with a saddle, or anyone with a saddle that was an enemy warrior, they would charge that cavalry enemy warrior on sight, simply because they were wearing a saddle Regardless of how much they were outnumbered, they did not respect the man if he if he <laughs> used a saddle to ride a horse. And this reminds me of I used to play the cross in high school. And if we spotted a goalie that had shin guards, the word would go around very quickly. Goalie is afraid of the ball. The goalie is afraid of the ball. And everybody would just start ripping shots on the goalie with the assumption that if he wore shin guards, he's afraid of the ball, shoot the ball as hard as you can at him, and he's going to flinch and he's going to be afraid of it. And this is a similar concept. The Germans just don't respect somebody that wears a saddle on a horse that doesn't ride the horse bareback. And the second they see people on saddles, it doesn't matter what their number is, if it's 10 Germans versus 100 Gauls, they're going to charge them anyway. In this case, they have 800 soldiers, and Caesar's allied Gallic cavalry is a number of 5,000. Of course, they're not all in one spot, but in total, 5,000. And what's more, Caesar depicts throughout the Gallic commentaries, Germans routinely charging Gallic cavalry that far outnumber them, and winning. You know, it's one thing to be suicidally brave like that or have ridiculous overconfidence based on somebody using a saddle. It's another thing when it works. And for the Germans, it seems to work again and again. Now, Caesar says in the commentaries the following about Germanic cavalry. Quote, Furthermore, the Germans do not import for their use the kind of pack horse which the Gauls so delight and pay high prices for. They take their own native animals, which are deformed and ugly, and by training them every day, make them capable of extreme hard work. During cavalry battles, they often jump down from their mounts and fight on foot, for they have trained their horses to remain on the same spot, and then quickly retreat to them in time of need. According to their standards, there is nothing more disgraceful or feeble than using saddles, and so, however few they may be, they will boldly move up and attack any number of cavalrymen on saddle mounts. 
They forbid the import of wine altogether, believing that it makes men weak and womanish in their capacity of exertion. End quote. So the Germans, true to form, 800 strong, charge the Gallic cavalry of 5,000, and the Gallic cavalry gets a little bit confusing in the commentaries here, but either stand their ground at first or possibly retreat at first to their comrades and then stand their ground. Then a, a brief skirmish ensues, but the Germans quickly throw the Gauls off guard by dismounting from their horses, as is their custom, and they just start stabbing the Gallic horses. They're not even trying to fight the troop, the, the soldiers on top of the horses. They're just stabbing at the horses. And you can imagine that this distracts the Gauls quite a bit, and then the Germans start yanking the Gauls down from their saddles. Almost like they're so unintimidated by the Gauls that, you know, they're going to stab their horse, yank them down from the saddle, get down from their saddle, boy, come fight. The Gauls are terrified by this brutal violence, by this aggression. And, and you have to remember that in the Roman mind, the Gauls were excessively aggressive and brutal and barbaric and unpredictable and brave. And here the Germans are that much more aggressive, that much more brave and brutal, that the Gauls are terrified of these people. And they begin just running wholesale away from these 800 Germans and towards the Roman column. Other Gauls who aren't involved in the skirmish see this, hop on their horses, join the retreat, and soon all 5,000 of Caesar's allied cavalry are charging back towards the Roman column. Now, Caesar, in one of his rare moments where he gives a number for his own losses, says that 74 of his allied cavalry are killed in this incident. And he even relays a heartbreaking story. It's about a man named Piso. He was a Gaul, but he was given a Roman name for a reason I, I won't go into right now. There's a whole big backstory to this guy. But his name was Piso, and Caesar calls him a man of outstanding courage. And this man, Piso is among the Gallic cavalry that is facing this charge of Germans, and Piso spots his brother, and his brother is surrounded by Germans and fighting for his life. Piso charges in to rescue his brother. Piso's horse is wounded in the fighting, but he's successful. His brother is able to escape from the battle. And when Piso's horse is wounded and he's thrown from the saddle, he gets up on his own two feet and continues to fight bravely against the Germans. Eventually, the Germans surround him. He receives many wounds and falls on the field of battle. Piso then sees his brother fall on the field of battle, the same brother that had just come to his rescue when he was surrounded. Piso's brother charges back into the battle to try to rescue his brother gets attacked by the same Germans, and he himself is killed. And in this heartbreaking story, in all in this you know skirmish with the Germans, both brothers die that day, both of them trying to rescue each other. Now remember, all of this account comes from Caesar. The fact that there was a truce, the terms of the truce, the, fact, the idea that the Germans broke the truce, all of this is according to Caesar. Now, did it really happen this way? We'll never know. And Goldsworthy makes the point that even at the time, they may not have known what happened. I mean, you have gangs of aggressive barbarian horsemen who are just roaming about and are difficult to control. 
at the best of times, never mind when they're not under your direct supervision, there's going to be lots of taunting. Taunting leads to duels. Duels can lead to mass fighting. Suddenly there's a skirmish. One side wins and is chasing the other side, and a rout and panic begins. You know, there's a million ways that this could start in which it's not just the Germans aggressively charging the Romans, but it would be in Caesar's best interest to paint it that way based on what happens next. Caesar fully blames the Eusippides and the Tenctari for breaking this truce that they had and calls it treachery. Now, our other source for these events, Cassius Dio, he was writing over 250 years later after these events, and Dio tells a similar tale to Caesar. In a way, he almost backs Caesar up. He says that the Germans had actually agreed to go home, which is a bit different than what Caesar said but that a band of their young cavalry warriors saw a small band of allied cavalrymen, just as Caesar had depicted it, despised them, presumably because of their saddles, and so attacked them without orders from their leadership. Now, this seems more likely because if you are an intelligent leader of these German tribes, you are trying to buy time until your cavalry force arrives back home. Why would you break the truce now when you don't have your full strength? It seems far more likely that it was some young, hot-headed guys who despised some dumb Gauls on saddles. I don't really mean that the Gauls are dumb. I just mean that this is the way the Germans would have seen them and charged them despite having no orders from leadership. But regardless of how this whole issue started, Caesar is not happy And in reading the Gala commentaries and kind of reading between the lines, Caesar seems livid. I mean, he uses some language that you just don't normally hear from him. He's also nervous because Caesar will routinely depict the Gallic tribes as very fickle. And this new, small, minor victory of the Germans over his allied cavalry will spread to the whole of Gaul. And with each telling, it will inflate like any fishtail. And soon it will be told it's a massive victory over the Romans by these new Germans. And of course, many Gallic allies, in, in air quotes, could easily be convinced to switch sides to this German side, and Rome could have a massive war on their hands. Caesar wants to nip this all in the bud and end this budding movement before it can get going and pick up any steam. As always, speed is Caesar's friend. So Caesar decides no more audiences for the German envoys at all. He alerts his officers that he intends to move with speed on the Germanic camp and does not want to wait for their cavalry to arrive and to make the battle bigger than it has to be. But the next morning, before Caesar even has a chance to march, a large crowd of Germans shows up at his camp. And Caesar says of this crowd of Germans, quote, These matters were settled. And he had communicated his plan of not letting a day for battle be missed to his legates and his quaestor when a most timely event occurred. The very next day, a large crowd of Germans, employing the same treacherous hypocrisy as before, called upon all their leading citizens and elders and came into the camp to see Caesar. End quote. And you can see from Caesar's language there, calling it treacherous and hypocrisy, that he is furious with these Germans. I mean, usually these kind of words aren't used in the commentaries. This is strong language from Caesar. And this is where things get controversial, even in Caesar's day. Caesar has all of these people seized. 
And when I say seized, I mean kind of imprisoned, probably not thrown in chains, but still not allowed to go anywhere, not allowed to leave his camp. And Caesar justifies this by saying that they had already betrayed the truce once, and now they want another fake truce to buy time for their cavalry to arrive, which he is not going to allow them and, and give them that extra time. Basically, he's saying that there's no need to respect the word of a people who have already behaved treacherously and have already broken their word only yesterday. Now, of course, Caesar's opponents in the Senate, namely Cato, will see this incident very differently. And Adrian Goldsworthy makes the great point that only, you know, in the last campaign season against the Veneti, Caesar had fought a war because they had seized his officers when they had come under, you know, peaceful terms and wanted to teach those barbarian peoples the law of nations. Now, here Caesar is seizing these German envoys and, you know, it, it's okay. And, and Goldsworthy points out that the people seized by the Veneti were Roman and were Caesars. And that's the big difference, right? If they are Caesar's men, if they are Romans, then they must be protected, they must be respected. And if they're German barbarians, eh, the rules are a lot looser. So after seizing the Germanic leadership, Caesar wastes no time. He arranges his army in a triple column and marches the seven Roman miles to the German camp. Cassius Dio says that Caesar surprised the Germans so much that he caught them taking their noonday rest in their tents. Essentially, the Germans expected no war of any means because their entire leadership was off meeting about a truce with Caesar. And now suddenly the Romans come marching on their camp. They're just kind of laying about in their tents, relaxing, having an afternoon nap when the Roman army comes in and they're thrown into confusion. They don't have their leadership there. That cannot be understated. Barbarian armies have a very difficult time organizing as it is. If you take away their leadership, there's really no hope. And so they're trying to figure out what to do. Do they defend their camp from the Romans? Do they come out of their camp to fight the Romans on the field of battle and in open ground? Would that be better? Or do they just turn tail and run? But before they got a chance to really come up with a, a decision where you know, if you had one person leading the army, they could just, hey, here's what we're doing. Charge out and meet the Romans. Instead, there's a lot of discussion, a lot of confusion. This person wants that. That person wants this. Soon, Caesar and the Romans take the decision out of their hands altogether, smash their way into the Germanic camp, and some of the Germanic men put up resistance among the wagons and the baggage. They grab whatever weapon they can find near at hand and just begin fighting the Romans. Cassius Dio says, quote, Rushing into the tents, he, meaning Caesar, but I imagine he also means his troops, not, not just Caesar. He says, He found great numbers of infantrymen who had not time even to pick up their weapons, and he cut them down amid their wagons where they were embarrassed by the presence of the women and the children scattered promiscuously about. End quote. About these women and children, Caesar says the following, quote, The Germans had departed their homes and crossed the Rhine with all their possessions. The crowd of women and children which remained began to flee in all directions. Caesar sent the cavalry to hunt them down. End quote. So there is no denying these kinds of atrocities against civilians by Caesar. From the Roman point of view, this was you know normal part of war. This is what happened in war. And even the most ruthless generals in war-torn countries try to hide today the fact that they kill civilians. 
in ancient times, I mean, Caesar wasn't even bothering. He was writing about it, announcing it to the Roman people who cheered about it. And when he says he hunted them down, he means that they took these people and killed them or made slaves of them. And from later passages, it seems like they mostly killed them. Now, according to Caesar, the Germans that were still fighting within the camp heard and saw the women and the children being killed outside the camp, and their morale just plummets. Panic ensues for the Germanic warriors. They throw down their weapons and flee towards the Rhine River. But the Romans follow in hot pursuit of the Germanic warriors and the Germanic women and children who are all running now until they hit the confluence of the Rhine and the Meuse rivers. And there they're trapped, and many more of them are killed than have already been killed running from the Romans. Some there get very desperate, jump into the river, and drown. Caesar says of this that they were, quote, overpowered by fear, fatigue, and the strength of the current, end quote. This is wholesale slaughter rather than a battle. I mean, Caesar says the Romans did not lose a single man. They had a few wounded, but no deaths. That is not a battle. After the battle, or more likely massacre as we should call it, Caesar offers to free the German tribal leadership. But the leaders insist on staying with Caesar and in his camp because they are afraid of reprisals from the Gauls whose lands that they had invaded previously, people like the Benapii and other tribes they had raided, and they would now be wandering through Gaul without the protection of their tribe with a lot of potential vendettas aimed their way. So they want Caesar around as their protector, and that's fine by Caesar. He says they're welcome to stay with him. Now, regarding the cavalry force of the Eusipides and the Tenctari, who were heading back to their tribe, eventually they hear about this wholesale slaughter. They decide they're no match for the Romans, especially, you know, maybe even beforehand, but especially not now that their whole infantry force has been wiped out. So they just simply cross the Rhine and head back to Germania and call it quits. Now, at some point later, because there is no internet, no instant information fed to the people of Rome, at, at some point later, through letters and through messengers, through merchants, news of this victory reaches the people of Rome. And the citizens and many of the senators cheer and celebrate and go wild as they always do for Roman military victories. But Cato and his followers do not. Cato, like I said before, says that Caesar should be handed over to the Germans. And his issue, interestingly enough, is not with the slaughter of civilians, but with the breaking of the truce. Cato really has no issue with slaughtering civilians. That was kind of normal and, and par for the course in Roman military tactics. But he says that by breaking this truce, Caesar invites the wrath of the gods onto the Roman people. He says that a curse will befall all of them from the gods if they do nothing. So it's better to hand Caesar over and by doing so confer the curse only upon Caesar and show the gods that he is not protected by them, that he is not one of them, and then make a whole bunch of sacrifices to appease the gods before they rain down terror upon Rome. Adrian Goldsworthy makes the point that Rome had a special relationship with the gods, or believe that they did, 
And you know they would have pointed to as clear proof of this special relationship the fact that they had this unrivaled success in warfare. And who else could have so much success in warfare but a people who were blessed by the gods? And this relationship depended on the Romans' virtue and on them honoring sacred obligations or oaths like this truce, which Cato says Caesar broke. So this is the point that Cato makes, but no one's very convinced by this logic. They think that Cato's making a weak case because, yes, Rome had handed over generals to foreign peoples to punish them in the past, but this was typically done after an embarrassing defeat or a surrender or some kind of peace treaty that favored the enemy rather than Rome, not for victories. Rome doesn't punish victorious generals. Rome loves a winner, and victory solves all Roman problems, especially victory in war. But even though nobody's really buying what Cato's trying to sell, Caesar is livid that he's even trying to sell it. He sends a letter to the Senate to be read out by his supporters to you know, make his case against Cato. And Plutarch says of this, quote, After this, Caesar wrote a letter and sent it to the Senate. And when it was read with its abundant insults and denunciations of Cato, Cato rose to his feet and showed not an anger or contentiousness, but as if from calculation and due preparation that the accusations against him bore the marks of abuse and scoffing and were childishness and vulgarity on Caesar's part, end quote. Essentially, Cato does some verbal jujitsu here, which Cato is great at. He uses the letter to denounce Caesar and make him look bad. He even goes so far as to say that it isn't the sons of Celts and Germans that Rome needs to be afraid of, but of Caesar himself. Now, Caesar's not there to defend himself or to change tactics. That is his big weakness being in Gaul. He can write letters and have them read out by people, but sometimes... You know, Cato, he's, he's a very good political actor, and he can, you know, jujitsu you, and if Caesar was there in person, he would realize that, and of course, change tactics and say something else eloquent and win the crowd over to his side. You know, him and Cato would always go back and forth, and they were a good match for each other. But if somebody's just reading Caesar's letters, then there's no, there's no one there to change tactics when things go wrong, and that's what happens here. It ends in disaster for Caesar. Plutarch says that Caesar's friends were sorry that they had ever read the letter in the first place, that it did far more harm than good. And that is where we will end this episode, episode 45 of the March of History, with a military victory or a wholesale slaughter for Caesar, but a political defeat. But before we go, as we've done in the past two episodes, let me go ahead and read you two five-star reviews that we have for the March of History. First, we have a five-star review from Wisdom Tooth, who says, Never knew I would find Roman history so interesting. Well, Wisdom Tooth, I am very glad that I was able to kindle an interest in Roman history in you. That is one of my goals of this podcast, is to spread an interest in history. I think history is fascinating. I don't think it's always taught in a fascinating, interesting way, but I think that it can be when it's taught the right way. So I'm glad I was able to do that for you. And the second review says, a fantastic listen, and this is by Travelin Lass. And she says, a natural-born storyteller, never thought I'd find history so phenomenally interesting. 
again, thank you. I'm glad I was able to kindle that interest of history, and I appreciate the compliment about storytelling. That's it for reviews this week. If you want to have your review read on the March of History, then go ahead and leave a five-star review with a little nice thing about what you like about the podcast. I'll read two each week, and eventually we'll get through them all. And, you know, as more come in, I will read them and it helps the podcast. It helps the podcast to grow. It helps with the algorithms and Apple. So please, please, please do that. It would really mean a lot to me as the host who works very hard on these podcasts. That is it. Thank you for listening. And I will talk to you on episode 46 of the March of History. There are two small corrections I need to make before we end today's episode and play the end credit music. In listening back to this episode, I saw that I had, you might call it a brain fart, in two different moments throughout the episode, and I wanted to make that correction now. In talking about the Marini and the Monopii, I described you know the area they were in between the north of France and Belgium and said that this was an area that many soldiers dug into trenches during, I say, World War II and found the mud to be awful and the type of mud that could swallow a person whole. Of course, I meant World War I. This was you know, a simple brain fart, a misspoken word, but an essential misspoken word. So if you found yourself screaming at your device saying, what is he talking about? That was not World War II. Then know that you were absolutely right. I was referring to World War I and battles like Passchendaele. The second correction is that in telling the story of Piso and his brother, those are the two Gallic allied cavalry warriors fighting on Caesar's side that both died in the German fight, both trying to save each other. I at one point say that Piso falls on the field of battle and then Piso turns around, sees his brother fall and charges in. Of course, I did not mean to refer to Piso's brother as Piso. I was referring to his brother who goes unnamed in the commentaries. So the story goes that Piso charges in, saves his brother. His brother then runs away, turns around in time to see Piso fall into the enemy, and then his brother charges back into the battle and dies trying to rescue Piso. And therefore, both brothers died trying to rescue each other. The way I told the story made that quite confusing, so just wanted to clear that up. And we will talk to you next time, for real this time, on the March of History. Thank you.